Hello, wrestling fans. Welcome to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax. And we got a very exciting show. I'm actually really been looking forward to this show for a while because I'm probably going to learn a lot from this show, and I'm, I'm the host of the show. We are talking championship wrestling from Florida on this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, we're talking the, the Eddie Graham territory that existed in the 60s throughout the mid-80s. And fortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Once again, joining me from the asylum in South Kakalaki, the crazy train himself, Mr. Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to be back on Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, caveat before we get rolling in here, folks. If I seem distracted, uh, we are as we recorded this, the Iron Bowl is going on, and I am watching Alabama-Auburn because as a Georgia grad and former player there, I'm kind of interested in who wins this because we get them next week in the SEC championship game. Uh, the other caveat would be, I don't know that much about championship wrestling from Florida. I know a little bit. So as I told you all when we first started this podcast about a year ago now, that I had a black book and I would dig in and try to find you know former friends and colleagues who might be more knowledgeable than me, and that's what we have this week uh, coming to us from the great sunshine state of Florida, uh, a guy that I met oh, back in my wild side days probably 15, 20 years ago, uh, Seth would have to give you all his accolades. I know he was a two-time NWA World Tag Team Champion, and that is Mr. Classy Chris Nelson. How are you doing today, brother? I am doing absolutely wonderful, and I'm glad we're not talking about uh, Minnesota wrestling because then I wouldn't have anything to say. (laughs) (laughs) Seth, I know I left out some. I'm sure you've got a list there. Well, uh, I had my notes that this is a man who's wrestled all over the world, multi-year veteran, has had matches for WWE and WCW, and according to my notes, a three-time former NWA Tag Team Champion, Mr. Chris Nelson. Do I, is it three or is it two? Set, set the record straight, Chris. It is three. It is, it is three, without a doubt. The, the interesting one is the, the first one that we won was actually in Florida at the Fort Hesterly Armory, which is where Eddie Graham and Florida Championship Wrestling used to hold their biggest shows. So that was an, an actual memory I can't wait to get into there. Uh, but it, it was three, and uh, very lucky to do it. It was over a two-year period, and they actually wanted four, but uh, just didn't work out like that. Got injured, and that was the end of it. So definitely three good ones, though. And for the record, I should have put it in my intro that uh, one half of the new Heavenly Bodies. So another thing to clear the air, uh, I'm – fairly sure, certain that uh, this is a yes, but I'm assuming Jim Cornette was cool with you using the name of the New Heavenly Bodies, right? Absolutely, and it was. we were actually planning to do New Heavenly Bodies against the Heavenly Bodies, um, but it just didn't materialize. We were going to do that, and Jimmy Del Rey was actually our manager for, well, whenever he wanted to participate, um, <laughs> but we were going to do Jimmy and Stan against me and my partner with Cornette managing, and um, he definitely knew about it. Dr. Tom Pritchard loved it. He loved the idea. And then after we were done, now they have the new, new heavenly bodies that are out there now. Um, wow. And I, I sent them an email. Yeah. There, there's newer heavenly bodies and, you know, but their wrestling is the new heavenly bodies. So I send them an email and I'm like, Hey, you know, um, we were in the PWI, you know, top 10 in the world for two years as the new heavenly bodies. You know, I don't want people to get confused and think it's you guys. And, you know, they really haven't come close to what we did, but who knows they might. They're actually a very good team. Very, very good team, actually. Yeah, but, brother, that's so, a little bit felonious, man. That, that, that's gimmick infringement. I'm just saying, you know. 
Well, yeah, it's, no, not, it, it totally it's not is. like they can and, ask you to be the old new heavenly bodies. Well, and, and, and if, if they wanted the old heavenly bodies, we would probably come back and uh, beat them down. But, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely would have been gimmick infringement if we would have called ourselves the heavenly bodies, which we didn't. So, wow. you know, it's... Uh, they they always say in wrestling they always say if you, if you're stealing if you if you're stealing once you're stealing twice and you know if you steal something from a wrestler it's probably already stolen. Well, since we're talking about corny, I mean he says it all the time. If you steal from one person, it's it's theft. If you steal from many people, it's research, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, true too. And I never asked Corny. I just assumed that he was cool with you guys because he spoke so highly of you and Vito. Anytime I brought you guys oh, up, we talked. So. So, you know, I mean, heck, yeah. he, I, I think he was very happy that we carried on with with the name and that we had some success. And I'm happy that we had the success. And it was just, it was a good marriage between, you know, the NWA who was trying to make a comeback and two guys that didn't mind traveling and, you know, really working our butts off to get it done. That the NWA resurgence is the only reason you and I met was because of part of that. That working deal we yep. have between Georgia and Florida. So yeah, and and it was it was fun. I tell you what, you know, coming up and doing NWA Wildside, you know, you got to. You, you, there was a lot of heart in that building. You had guys that were excellent wrestlers. A lot of them, you know, AJ Styles and a bunch of them that went on to having good careers. Jimmy Ray and and people like that. But you know, that building right there, it reminded me a lot of the of the Sportatorium in Tampa. I mean, it was a small building that produced some of the best wrestling. You know, probably in the United States at the time, without a doubt, he had a lot of good talent in Georgia. Bill Barron's, you know, he had a good collection of guys right there. Never forget the, the the drunken disorderly with y'all. Did, that was hilarious, man. That was some good stuff, man. But I watched I that on. Uh, <laughs> I watched that on tape about about a month ago, and I think I still have knots on my head from Sean Royal. But you know what? Uh, it was it, fun. Joined the club. I think I still got. I think I still got a few scars on my chest from his chops. But anyway, I, I grip. Oh. <laughs> Seth, take us away. Let's get started on talking about championship wrestling from Florida. No, enough reminiscing here. <laughs> well, championship wrestling from Florida. Uh, it, it had several names over the years, but the company has its roots stemming all the way back to the late '40s. I my research has it as starting around 1949 with Cowboy Clarence. Is it Latrell or? Some people call it Luttrell. Some people call it Luttrell. It sounds like Luttrell to me. That's the best way that I, that's the way I've always heard it. Uh, It's unclear when it became an NWA territory. The earliest back I can trace any championship is Ray Stevens winning the NWA Florida Television Championship in 1956. That's at least according to Wikipedia. But the main era we're probably going to talk about is uh, the 60s into the 70s which is a huge time for the promotion. This was when the company was owned and operated by Eddie Graham, Hiro Matsuda, and Duke, uh, is it K- Kiyomoka? K- Kiyomoka? Duke, yes. Duke Kiyomoka. And at least two of those names we could probably devote entire episodes to because Eddie Graham has such a history as a promoter and Hiro Matsuda has a laundry list of people that he trained. So you know, you're talking some great minds right there. Didn't we already do a whole show on, on Eddie Graham when we did our Booking 101 episode? Since well, yeah, we came we, up every. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we, 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 it was basically about him and Dusty, pretty much. Was... <laughs> and, he, and Dusty was Eddie's disciple. I mean, if, you, if our listeners remember and want to go back to the archives and listen to that episode, he was the first great booker that I listed on my list, and it kind of went from there. So, anyway. 
Right, right. And and I I completely agree with with the whole thing. Dusty became the booker that he became because of the fact that he worked with Eddie Graham when he came from Texas and, you know, got tired of running around with Dick Murdoch. And Eddie kind of took him under his wing and taught him pretty much everything that Dusty knew at the time and, and really imparted the wisdom that, you know, Dusty would go from Florida and then take it, you know, worldwide and end up making money for a lot of people. But that's all the stuff that he learned in Florida. And, you know, going back as a fan, it was a completely different time because I can remember sitting there at seven years old, not eight years old, nine years old, and you know, it wasn't just wrestling matches. Some of the finishes that that went through and some of the angles, I mean, the Florida people were passionate. You would have fights in the you know, in the parking lots. You would have you would have people fighting each other in the buildings because God forbid someone did something dirty, you know, someone's not gonna like it and that would lead to fights in the building. I mean, the Florida people were passionate and I think that the success of Florida Championship Wrestling was right place, right time right booker Uh, you know everything just became the perfect storm of good and that all started in the 60s when when eddie took over cowboy latrell did a good a good job and got it established but they were they were working more like the the local armories you know the two and three and four hundred steep places and by the end of the time when eddie had it you know they were putting it in the orange bowl and tampa stadium and drawing twenty thousand thirty thousand people so it, it, it started out small and became huge, and then one day it ended, and that's the bad part of it. You know, as you bring up Eddie Graham and, and how he expanded it, Chris, it reminds me of a lot of the things that uh, old-timers that worked that territory have told me about Eddie, that he, here's a guy with a seventh-grade education, but just probably, uh, uh, you know, some, if you can have beyond a doctorate, uh, an understanding psychology of, of just people, you know, and... I think that's how he grew, like you're talking about. And he, they all talked about how he became a fixture within the community itself there in Tampa in particular, but the whole state of Florida at large, um, how he was so uh, active civically and with charitable stuff. And, and then, of course, he had his, his famous amateur wrestling camp for youth that, heck, several future stars came out of those. Um, and, and that's what a lot of people, you know, a lot of people could take that and and they could use that to their advantage today because he hooked up with the boys clubs and he right. hooked up with the Florida Sheriff's Youth Ranch and they created charity events which got their name out there which got the people into it and which got the butts in the seat so right. if right. you know and that's what people have tried to do Vince McMahon you know all the way down to your your local guy that's running at the armory these days they try to involve the community, but it was a real thing for him. I mean, it wasn't just, oh, you know, I just want to go and, and you know, try to get right. some more people here. He he really did it because he wanted to invest in the community. And, right. you know, there's a, there's a big youth ranch pretty close to where I live that if it weren't for Eddie Graham, you know, it, they're still active today. And if it weren't for him, the thing would have never even been built. So, sure. I mean, sure. he definitely did it, and it has had a long history and it's helped a lot of kids, and to this day, it still helps them. So that's it, it was a hell of a it was a hell of a formula, and it's definitely sure. done them a lot of good. Well, I, I you know it's um, if you go back and, and listen to the Freebirds induction into Vince's Hall of Fame a few years back, Jimmy Jimmy Garvin talks you know glowingly about those camps you're talking about. That's what got him. I mean, you're talking the 
60s. Here's a young man who's the child of a single mother, which was, you know, that was uh, kind of a big deal back then, not the same as it is now. And look at the career Jimmy Garvin had. Just, I mean, that's just one example, you know. Um, and you have, and you have guys like uh, Steve Kern and and Paul Orndorff and and guys mm-hmm. that were major stars that came from the similar situations. Guys that, you know, if it weren't for Eddie Graham, you know, giving them a place to wrestle at Robinson mm-hmm. High School and and helping them, you know, go helping them with their wrestling. That really that led them into the careers that they were in. And look at all the millions of dollars those guys made. I mean, you know, everyone pretty much can thank Eddie Graham for that because he started it all. Sure. And as to the charitable work, I've heard it from Blackjack Melligan firsthand. I've heard it from Jim, Jimmy Crockett Jr. firsthand that that was a big thing with Eddie. Like you said, it was real with him, this whole idea of care about the community. I mean, he, would, he, would, I mean, he told Blackjack, look, they're supporting us. Without them, we don't have food on our table, so shouldn't we be treating them right? I mean, so that's kind of the mindset, at least my understanding, of what Eddie Graham had, you know. Um, and, and, and that's something that's missing, I think, in the homogenized corporate wrestling of today that was so unique to the territories, was you could have that kind of relationship with the promoters and the wrestlers with the local community. Uh, with Vince only bringing his act to town once or twice a year, you just can't get it anymore. But uh, I digress. We've talked about how the territories were so many times on, on these podcasts, I I don't think Chris could argue with me on that, but anyway, go ahead. Oh, absolutely not. And well, and there was a there was a big reason why Eddie's business was so successful too, is because everybody perceived it. If they thought it was fake in any way, shape, or form, he busted that notion down. He wanted everyone to think that this was one hundred percent legitimate. You know, that's why you know people could never go out together. If you know, heels and babies. If if you were seen together. He would fire you. Now, back yes. in the 60s, I've early heard those 70s, stories. Yeah, there was a main event between uh, Johnny Valentine and Red Bastine. Red Bastine, yeah. And they were they were selling out everywhere in Florida, and they ended up having a barbecue together on the beach on a Sunday. And some mm. fan just happened to see him, and, and he ran into Eddie Graham like three days later, and he said, hey, you know, all that wrestling is a bunch of crap. You know, I saw that guy and that blonde guy. And they were eating steak together. So he said, well, who are you talking Ooh. about? And he said, oh, that Valentine guy. And, and oh, so Valen- mm-hmm. Eddie, Eddie got on the phone, and he called Red Bastine, and he called Johnny Valentine, and he said, no need to come in tonight. You're fired. And he wow. fired them both. Mm-hmm. I've heard Mike Graham tell that story. God forbid you went out and you got in a bar fight and you got whooped because you would right. be fired too. <laughs> See, that, that, that brings up an interesting point when you bring up the losing a bar fight. Uh, when we talk about all the great promoters and bookers that came under that learning tree of Eddie Graham, one of them will be Bill Watts, you know, and he was very much the same way. You know, it was known fact. You lost a bar fight in the Louisiana Territory. Bye. You know, fortunately, he had I guys think, like uh, Dr. Death and Duggan that weren't going to lose many of those, but he get my point, you know. Oh, yeah. I think that he – I think that Bill Watts actually made – more money finding the wrestlers than he did probably, you know, selling tickets to his wrestling events. That was that was the famous thing. I'm not sure if Eddie Graham. I don't think Eddie. I don't think he learned that from Eddie, but he definitely uh, that definitely became something to where <laughs> you learn to be on time, which is a good yeah. life lesson, I guess. You well, know, your your, your, your notion of your your notion of more money from finding 
Uh, God rest his soul, Buddy Landell would definitely agree with you on that one. I've heard that come out of his uh, mouth a few times. <laughs> God rest his yeah, soul. I, Buddy. I, <laughs> it was, it, Buddy was his own worst enemy. Anyway. <laughs> You know, we brought up Mike Graham. I have two quotes uh, from Mike Graham. They're not exact quotes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It, it actually comes from, to give full credit, uh, a guest booker that he did with Kayfabe Commentaries, which is a fantastic series. But uh, I'll throw this question out. Uh, do you know why Eddie Graham got into Florida in the first place, at least according to, at least according to Mike? No. Mike Graham said that Eddie told him that the reason why he chose Florida to promote as a territory is because there was, there was only one front. There weren't states around, you know, he only had to worry about North. He didn't have to worry about promotions, you know, below or to the side of him, which, you know, I understand the logic in that. And uh, I think anybody who knew Eddie, you know, as we've just did for the last several minutes, would crow about the mind he had for the business. And Mike Graham would tell stories about how Eddie would match up guys in the ring just because of the way they would lace their boots up in the, in the locker room. And, that just blows my mind because obviously I've never had a career in wrestling, never taken a bump in my life. But it's just like, wow, you you, you talk about a uh, very astute acumen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've openly said, and, and I'd like to hear Chris's thoughts on this because we both had pretty long story careers. I can watch a guy lock up uh, and tell you if he knows what he's doing. I can tell you whether he's more of a baby face or a heel. But I don't know if I can watch him lace their boots up and know that. What say you, Chris? Yeah, and and you know what, I I have completely nothing on that one because you know the only the only difference that I could see is I was always taught to tuck my laces in, so maybe yes, if sir. someone has their laces out, you know, then you would perceive them as being unsafe. So I think, right. uh, but like like you said, train, I can I can look at a guy and watch him lock up. You know, after twenty five years, I can watch him lock up, and I can pretty much tell if I'm going to have a good match or a bad match. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I think if you're talking about the brain of, of Eddie Graham, he could probably, I, he obviously had some kind of knowledge about lace tying that, that made it successful for him because it obviously worked. I, I couldn't tell that. But, yeah, and, and on what Seth said about only having to worry about the North, you know, you didn't have to worry about Fidel Castro running wrestling. But that did give Eddie a chance. You know, Eddie used to run in the Bahamas. They would run down in the islands. You know, they would run. They would they would draw big down there. I actually wrestled down in the Bahamas at the place that they used to run out at Nassau Stadium. And, I mean, it was a toilet, but, you know, the people would show up in droves. You know, so they made a lot of money down there. And they used to run championship wrestling from Florida ran in Key West. They would run. They would go down there, and you know they would they would have fifteen thousand people, twenty thousand people that would go down to Key West and watch the show down there. It was just ridiculous houses down there. Yeah, because if you've never been to Key West, if you're not you know from this part of the country and have the pleasure of going down to Keys, they're not a populated area. It's it's tourism. So to draw houses like that, that many people were driving, and you were getting just about everybody local to come come to the show. You know, so that's amazing when you think about it. And, and there's one road down there, and there's one road out. And, you know, yep. it was everyone from, from, say, Marathon Key would all the way down. You know, that was pretty much the entire the entire Keys would be there at the wrestling matches in Key West. So, I mean, he really used the Florida territory from the southernmost point of Florida all the way up to the Alabama-Georgia line. Yeah, now this is... This he used the whole, the whole territory. Now, this is coming from Ronnie Garvin, so smart me up on this, Chris. I might have misunderstood Ronnie. He was telling me, you know, when they were really successful in the 70s, 
they would he would he would do like a lot of the territories. He would run two crews, run two towns the same night. And when they would go down to Miami, it would often be a second crew. And sometimes they would fill up some of the spots on that crew with some of the, the Caribbean guys from Carlos. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. They would. Uh, okay. They, at, yeah, at, at points they were running two and three towns a night, and you would have your you would have your big you know, let's say you're in Miami on one night. Well, they could maybe run Fort Pierce, which is a small town, or sure. they could run something, you know, if they're running Miami with Dusty and, and Pac Song and some of the bigger talent, they could take like a, you know, like a, a Lex Luger or a Jerry Briscoe and put him down, you know, at a community college somewhere and right. draw 1,500, 2,000 people at another show. So it was just a way to make more money and also employ a lot of wrestlers because if you're running two, you know, two crews, then you got a lot of people that, you know, you're going to need a lot of wrestlers and they would have them come down from, from Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has been hot for 30, 40 years. Right. They would always, you know, they would always welcome people. And if you could wrestle, then they would use you. If you were not good, you probably got beat up and you got thrown out. I mean, that's just how it was. Well, and to speak on how hot that territory was and how they were drawn, what Ronnie would tell me about when we were talking about this was that he was often the main event on that B team in the small armory or our college, you know, somewhere like, like you said, like a Fort Myers or Altamont Spring or somewhere else in the state, right? He was right. asked by Eddie one time to go be, you know, an underneath guy on a pack song, Dusty, or that kind of, you know, main event in, say, Miami. He said, no, I'd rather go work the main event on, on the small show because they were drawing so good, he could make as much or more money as the main event on the B show as he could working, you know, second or third from the, from the, from the top on the main. And this is with a show with Dusty in the main event, so you know it's sellout. So, oh, absolutely. That. And, 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 and he's, he, he's absolutely right because you would get, you know, they had their pay scale basically ran from, a percentage, you know, you would take the total percentage right. of the house and then like your first match would get, you know, 1% and third match would get maybe 2%, you know, right. and on up like that, on up going into the main events, you know, fifth match, you know, out of a 10,000 seat house is pretty good, but main event out of a three or 4,000 seat house, that's even better. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I would, I would have to go with Ronnie Garvin's on that one because, uh, you're going to make more money as the main event on the B town. So, sure. and you know, WWF uses W they, they do the same thing now. Sure. So it's the same sure. formula that that's been going on here for forever. And as far as I know, and, and I could be wrong, uh, Florida was one of the first territories to be successful enough to do that. You know, the Crockett's didn't get to that point until, Oh, late seventies, early eighties. Uh, I don't think Vern ever got to that point. I, Memphis, when, the, when Goulas and, and Jarrett split, you know, or, or right before the split, they were doing that in Tennessee. But I can't think of any other territories that were so, you know, successful until much later that they could run two, two shows, three shows a night like Florida. Am I wrong in thinking that? I'm glad you mentioned that, Train, because uh, even in going back to the early 70s, if I recall correctly, uh, Eddie Graham was one of the first uh, territory promoters that would fairly regularly feature the NWA World Heavyweight Champion on their larger shows. Well, it helps when, when Jack Briscoe, who's, who's based out of Tampa, was champ during that run, but I like that. 
Well, and, and at the time, of course, Florida is drawing the biggest houses in the NWA. You know, sure. you, you know that the world champ could come in for, for a week and he would sell out everywhere, which was pretty much close to being a sellout with even, even without him. So they, he would come in and like Ric Flair would come in and, you know, make two to five, maybe even $8,000 a night back right. in the eighties before it shut down. And even in the late seventies, I mean, it was the money, there was money to be made. And I know that all the top guys like that, they worked on percentage, but like the mid Carters, they would probably get an average, you know, 50 bucks a night, which back then would be like 200 a night now. So, I mean, even the mid card guys were making money. Everybody was making money. And, and I, I believe, bonuses, I, I mean, I believe, and maybe I'm wrong here, that the NWA champ back in that era was guaranteed, and this is coming from the office in St. Louis, was guaranteed something like 15% of the house, regardless of whatever else the promoter did. Isn't that correct? Or 20% maybe? Yeah, like it, 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 they, were, they were definitely a percentage that was, that was definitely in the double digits. And right, the and they were, the they, house, were just, they were just figured in that way because some of the money had to go back to St. Louis, I'm sure. But anyway. Oh, absolutely. I think I think the NWA ended up getting. I, I think the figure the NWA got three percent whenever the yeah. champion was on there. So right, they would right. get three percent of the house. So of course they're gonna they're gonna make their money. But if I was world champion, you know, one time I was, but it was a completely different thing. But I want to go where I could wrestle seven nights in a row, you know, and make damn good money every night. Well, you, rather you, you than, brought up, you, rather than oh, you know, well, it, it's going to be it's going to be good here, but then we may only draw three or four hundred people here, but then we're going to draw five thousand. It was sold out every night. Well, you brought up earlier how Eddie Graham was so much into the realism. Kayfabe was definitely you know in practice there, and it was presented very much on the real of in, out of that particular office in Tampa. Uh, I dare say, go back and watch from the early 70s, the funk Briscoe matches, which, you know, was a weird a weird dynamic, not that dissimilar from, say, Austin and Brett or Sean and Brett in the late 90s in WWE, where Jack's the hometown guy in the babyface in Florida, but if they go to Amarillo in Texas, well, the funk, you know, Dory Jr., Jr.'s the, the, the babyface there, Jack's kind of the heel. But um, you talk about two guys with legit amateur backgrounds, uh, you know, athletically, that made you believe it was real. Everybody's heard about the, you know, the Steamboat Flair of 89. Everybody's, you know, Brett and Sean in the 90s. Well, Briscoe and, and Funk, that was that of the 70s. Do you agree with that? And, and that was a lot in that territory. And before it was Briscoe and Terry Funk, it was Briscoe and Dory Funk. So yeah, they I'm went back talking, and forth. I'm, I'm talking Junior. I'm, not, I'm in no disrespect to Terry. I'm talking Junior versus Jack, yeah. Okay, yeah, and they went they went for for years. That thing was was so popular for years and sold out everywhere because they traded the belt. I mean, it was it was a big deal back then. And Jack Briscoe, you know, he was never a heel. They, and actually, the Briscoe brothers they were they never turned heel until like '83 when they went to Carolina. Right, right about the time of the Starcade, yeah. And but we 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 had Mike Moodyham on our very first episode talking about the first Starcade, and he went at length about. Uh, what Jack had told him about having to convince, you know, uh, Dory Jr., who was booking Crockett at the time, and Jim Jr. into turning them heel. It wasn't like it, it was so. It was kind of a miracle that happened there. And 
probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the fact they were working guys that were so over like Steamboat and, and Youngblood, you know. But well, and, and, and just anyway. a, just a sidebar, just a sidebar on that one. One of the best tag team matches of all time: the Briscoe Brothers against Steamboat and Youngblood from Starcade '83. If you've never seen it, you need to see it. What a great match! Oh yeah, oh yes, oh okay. The spot where he puts where where, where Jerry puts not yeah it was Jerry puts Steamboat in the short arm scissor a hold no one uses anymore. And then he does the power up out of it. Amazing! Oh my gosh, I pop for that every time I see it. Never gets old. Well, listen, you, you know, there there is one there is one way to see a short arm scissor today. You know, they still do it in midget matches. Yes, yeah. and, and it helps out with some training. What little I can do with with my health issues. About a month ago, in, in down there in Georgia, and I showed it to some of the guys, and they're like, "What a cool move! Nobody does this anymore." I said, "It's amazing what happens if you talk to old timers, isn't it?" But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, on a trivial note, you know, mentioning the original Starcade, you know, like like I said, our first ever Classic Wrestling Memories episode with Mike Mooneyham talked about the first Starcade, and we talked a little bit about Barbara Clary, and, and uh. at the time, I didn't know where she came from. It turns out <laughs> she was from Florida, and she was like the interview yeah. girl for, for Florida. And if you go to YouTube... And search the words, three words Ric Flair has never heard from a Florida woman. And you'll see Ric Flair hitting on Barbara Clary. <laughs> Don't interrupt me, Gordon. I want to talk to Barbara. You know, Barbara, it's an established fact that I'm a real commodity for the women in the world today. You know that, right? Now, come on, give me a little hitch. So, I have a riddle that I'd like you to answer for me. What are the three words that Ric Flair had never heard. I repeat, the three words that Ric Flair has never heard from a woman in Florida. You don't know the answer? Where's the beat? Every single male had a crush on Barbara, on Barbara Clary. She was beautiful, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, early 80s. She was beautiful, and they had her because... She would do the interviews, but she was the Spanish commentator also. So, she, you know, they would do they would do a spot in Championship Wrestling for Florida TV where they would promote their shows for their Spanish-speaking people. So she would run down the matches and run down when they're going to be. They had special towns like Punta Gorda, which they would run maybe once a month, and that was 95% Spanish. So she would have to go on there and, and talk to them in their language so they knew, hey, they're going to be here in Punta Gorda in our, back, in our backyard here. So that was, she was very instrumental in drawing big houses in smaller towns and bringing out the, the Spanish population, which has always been big in Florida. So she was a godsend for Florida Championship Wrestling, and, and she was a godsend for many males that were growing up watching her, <laughs> myself included. I can only imagine what Spanish must sound like with a southern accent. Well, well I mean, you know, I could probably, I could probably, it, it would sound something like Yo Quiero Taco Bell. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, I know that, was, and I know five other Spanish words, and that's all. Well, she sounds like the, uh, she was Lillian Garcia before Lillian Garcia, you know? And Lillian's well, and from Columbia, was, South Carolina, so it's another southern gal, but anyway... Yes, she was very talented, and and she was you know she was not hard to look at at all. So it was it was a beautiful thing. Well, we're talking about announcers, and, and, and I'm shocked we've gotten this far in, in talking about championship wrestling before. And I haven't brought it up yet. And let's be honest, it was definitely a major part of their success. 
He's in Gordon my notes. Foley. How can yes. how can you not talk about Chancellor Russell not talk about the dean? Uh, what are your memories and, uh, as a, a guy growing up down there listening to him? Well, and, and we uh, there's a thing down here called the Legends Lunch that's in Tampa huh? every three months, and we're lucky enough to have Buddy Colt that comes by, and uh, he's there at every single one. And I've talked to him at length about Gordon and just about how it was to work with him. And, you know, he used to do it all by himself at first. He would do all of the color, all the play-by-play. He was a one-man show. And he did so good in Florida that they had him go to Georgia. And, you know, he just expanded all over the place. But, I mean, the guy was amazing. He was a wealth of knowledge. And, I I mean, there's no other word besides amazing for the guy. Myself, personally, I was very lucky to have four or five matches commented that he did commentary on when I was with WCW, and I have those, and I protect them because, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's Gordon Soley. I mean, he, sure. his voice was, he, I mean, it, and they, they positioned their TV to the point where I would see it at 7 o'clock, and it would run from 7 to 8, and then the matches didn't start till 8.30. So you could literally watch their program from seven to eight, hop in the car and get there and then be right there for the matches. It didn't start till eight thirty. And like blackjack Mulligan always said, you know, get mama out the kitchen, get the kids out from under the TV, get them in the pickup truck and get to Lakeland or get to winter Haven or wherever they're running and see the main event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it, as a tape trader growing up, of course, we've talked about that before here that, you know, before the internet, tape trading was what hardcore wrestling fans did. And I had I had a guy I traded with Crockett stuff for, you know, Chancellor Wrestling Florida stuff. Um, I loved uh, Gordon Soley as an interviewer. And all due respect to, to Mean Gene Oakland, who was a great interviewer in his own right. How Gordon would do those, those individual interviews he would do where he would sit behind the desk from the old TV, loved those. Those were so awesome. And, and, and when we talk about the famous buildings in Florida, I'm guessing those those where did they do the TV to do those those behind the desk interviews, Chris? That would then where um, Sportatorium. That was at yeah, that was at a little small building called the Sportatorium that seated about a hundred people. But that was right. also where that was where the office was. The entire okay. upstairs they had uh, Eddie's office and and whoever the Booker was at the time. Gordon had an office up there, and that's where they had they kept all their tapes there, all their tape collection. And they would do all the interviews from there. Everything was done right there in that building. It only seated about 100 people, and they would tape TV. They would run Tampa at the Fort Hesterly Armory on Tuesday nights, and then they would tape TV Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. So you would see the wrestlers about 8 a.m. start rolling in there, hungover or, you know, still in their clothes from the night before. And they would be coming in there to do TV. You know, I, I, I saw Ric Flair going there many nights in the clothes that he had on the night before. And, sure. you know, they would film that at, at, at 10 a.m., and then they would hop in the car and drive down to Miami, which is four hours away. So that building was, it was really the hub for everything. They sold tickets out of the front for the matches in Tampa and pretty much anywhere, and then they would film their TV there. Their offices were there. So that, that building, it was 106 North Albany Street in Tampa. And... I love that building. It is actually, it has just been recognized as a historical place uh, by the state of Florida and the city of Tampa. And they actually put it up for sale. And I was thinking of going in with a friend of mine and buying it, but it was a little bit over my price range. It went for almost a half a million dollars. So 
Yeah. That's out of my price bracket, uh, too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, don't, I don't think I can come home and tell my wife that I just bought a $500,000 building. Um, well, yeah. why, honey? It means so today. much to me, though. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she would, she would throw me out, and I would have to go live in the sportatorium. But See, there's was, a reason why was, you're still with your wife and I'm divorced, but I digress once again. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I've never heard of a wrestler getting divorced. That was the first for me. Oh, really? <laughs> well, Ricky Morton told me a long time ago, he said there were three rules that was, he was, when I could say yes to all three of these, he would consider me a true worker. I had to have gone, I've had to have ruined a marriage and or a long-term live, you know, live-in relationship. Spend a night in jail after a after a show somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and have your car break down in the middle of so, so nowhere on the way to uh, a show. Without going into many details, we'll save that for another episode. I can now check three on all those boxes, and we'll move on from there now. But anyway, and and I can I can check the same three boxes with you and probably about four others. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so the the TV was in the, the, the sportatorium, but the major shows were at an armory, right? Yeah, they made the shows in Tampa at the Fort Hesterly Armory, and this was a place that, A, it had no air conditioning, but it would seat, they would get 6,000 people in there, and it was, well, it was, it was an armory, it was built in the 40s, and uh, it was a huge building, obviously, to put 6,000 people in it. it, but it was perfect for wrestling, it had a balcony, and they would put, they would put the uh, little bleachers in there, and they would have, of course, their chairs on the front, and it was just the perfect, absolute place. That's where they filmed. If they had an angle that they wanted to film, they would film it at the armory. And they would put it on TV. Everything that happened important happened at the armory. And so it was, all those it was clips amazing. That we got, so all those clips that we got on Crockett TV to show us what was going on down in Florida was that building. That's what you're telling me. Yes, 95% of what you saw was from... Yeah. That building. Now, they would do something big occasionally, say, at the Lakeland Civic Center, because that was a 7,000-seat building. They would right. do something occasionally in Miami. But 95% of the things they did came from the armory. And, right. you know, they – it was just, it was magical. It was magical to be at that building and to pay the, you know, six or eight bucks, whatever it was, to get in and sit up in the, up in the stands up there and just – Sweat your butt off and watch great wrestling. I mean, it was phenomenal. It was it was magical, and and that's how it was for me growing up. It was just it's some of my favorite memories are of that building. So six thousand people with no air conditioning. That, that, that's what you're saying. Six thousand people, and and that was before in they were smoking in buildings. Yeah, in Florida, yeah, and and in you Florida, would, you would have people you'd have people sweating and smoking and fighting and farting and cussing. And it was, I mean, it was something else. I, wow. I love the armory, but I appreciated the Lakeland Civic Center. Aren't you glad you used dial? <laughs> 6,000 people, no air conditioning? Yeah, but here's the oh, thing. Oh, it that, was horrible. That smell, that, that, that literally could cut it with a knife in the, in the air, it's magical. I mean, I know it, it sounds gross as we describe it, but it, wasn't it a little bit magical to you, though, at the same time? Fond memories? It was. I mean, it, it, I, I I still remember the cigarette smoke, and like you yeah. said, it was. And, and you know what? On a personal note, it was the only time that I ever got to see my dad. He would come into town, and and we would go to wrestling. That was what we did. So yeah. it was, you know, it, it, for me, it was the best place ever. But it, well, it was know, like we, it was like a a Disneyland for for wrestling fans. Right. The, the wrestling fans, you might remember me talking about on our on our the Great Memphis Split episode. 
as a guy growing up in the Carolinas, I had certain buildings I wanted to always be able to wrestle in. And there were some that were outside the Carolinas. And I mentioned, you know, Mid-South Sportorium in Memphis. The, the, the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory was so big to me. That was one of those two. I always wanted to wrestle in that when I got into the business. And I wasn't even from Florida. So that should tell you how, how magical and important that building was, historically speaking. You know, a guy going in the business, not even from that territory, wants to wrestle there. I knew it was that important. Well, they, they ended up shutting that building down. And, yeah. of course, you know, with uh, they actually opened it back up. And mm-hmm. we started running wrestling there in 2000. And we had some pretty good crowds. But then after 9-11, you know, that's when things really got bad. But before 9-11 happened, that was where me and my partner won our first NWA World Tag Team title. So to win an NWA title in the Fort Hesterly Armory that had just been reopened for wrestling for the first time in 25 years was phenomenal. And that was, you know, they used to call it the Madison Square Garden of the South. Yep. And, you know, it, it, it was that important because that's where everything happened, like I said. And it, it, was, it was great. It's a great building. Now, they, they actually just ran a show in there um, about two months ago and had about a thousand people there, but it's now a Jewish community center and right. it, it doesn't have the arena that it used to have. So they actually tore all that down. So it looked like you were wrestling, you know, in a, it, it was it's a very nice building, but it's not the armor anymore. I heard something about Joe and Dean Malenko trying to get a, a, a plaque or some kind of historical landmark or something place there. Did, is that, did that ever happen or, or am I wrong in that? They are. Yeah. They're, they're still, collecting money for it is actually going to be a wall it's going to be a big wall that has everything to do with wrestling in that history and that was what the show was a benefit for so it's uh yeah and they actually they did about two and a half years ago they did a wrestling benefit for that for that exact same thing and they had everyone down here that could get in there sign autographs and they drew over a thousand people it was like a fan fest everyone was there dorian cherry funk um, the only bad part was it was on the day that Dusty Rhodes died. Oh, so I man. actually, yeah, I, I attended, I attended it there and I was sitting there with a couple of, uh, Florida wrestling historians and we were having lunch and one of them just came in and said that Dusty died. And that was about three o'clock that we heard that. And the event was at six, but it was, you know, it definitely put a, it put a somber feeling to it, but over 90 people that were involved in Florida championship wrestling showed up. Rick Flair couldn't make it to that, but he actually flew himself in on his own money the next day and did an autograph session for everyone that wanted to come see him from the wow. night before. Dory and Terry Funk were there. Um, I mean, it was it was amazing. The guys, Scott McGee, Hector Guerrero, Steve Kern, Barry? Brian Blair. Uh, who's that? Barry, I'm guessing. No, no Barry. Well, no his, health was kind of, um, his health was kind of bad at that point, too, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I think that was about yeah. the time he had a heart attack and a stroke, so, you know, yeah. I, I think he gets a pass. <laughs> <laughs> Without a Joe doubt, he gets a pass. But Joe and Dean everyone, Malenko, I'm sure, they weren't there, weren't they? Yeah, they, they were definitely there, and, um, you know, everyone that could make it was there, and that's because everyone, every wrestler has such fond memories of wrestling for Florida Championship, you're not going to hear anyone come in there and say, oh, I hated it. It was the worst time of my life. I, I wish I would have never done it. No, there's no one has ever said that. Just because if you were a wrestler around that time and you got to be part of it, you realize that you were a part of magic. It was like, you know, being on the Super Bowl team, the 49ers that won four Super Bowls. I mean, it's like being a teammate with right. Joe Montana. 
I mean, it was it, it was it was that amazing, and no one ever said, "Oh, I hated it," because nobody hated it. I mean, if you liked wrestling and you were a wrestling guy and that was your job, that's the place to go. That was the WWF of back then, you know. Uh, and and it's it, it's two different kinds of wrestling. That's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. The northern wrestling is it is what the WWF is now, but the, the southern wrestling is blood and guts. It's emotion. It's it's blood and guts, and that's what people wanted. You always fought for money, for titles, for respect, or occasionally women. And it was a real reason that you were wrestling if you fought the South. You know, in Florida was oh, absolutely just like just like all the other territories we've talked about here, whether it's Tennessee or Texas or the Carolinas. That's just what Southern wrestling was. I would say I've, I've even told you before, Seth, uh, as a a person from up north who grew up. You know, you came into the game late, but you had seen WWF, 80s WWF. Mm-hmm. Then when you got older and saw Crockett and you saw Florida and you saw Tennessee, you understood why we laughed at what WWF was. Oh, Sting versus Big Van Vader, Great American Bash, 1992. To this day, my favorite match of all time, and it's what <laughs> made me a WCW fan. That match is amazing. And you have to remember, WCW it gets tied to being, well, it's just the remnants of the old Georgia and Carolina character. No, mm-hmm. it wasn't. What, what, what it became was also a little bit of the old Mid-South, a little bit of the old Florida, because at that point, Crockett had bought it. So, I mean, yeah, t- t- Turner's stuff was Southern wrestling, especially in the first five, six years. Don't right. you agree, Chris? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, let's set, set the stage here uh, before we uh, go to break and pay some bills here. Let, 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 let's set the stage, kind of uh, uh, set the scene here for what we're going to talk about in the next segment. Uh, which is really where Florida really hit a stride was probably the early 1970s. We're talking the days of Harley Race's first reign, Jack Briscoe's first reign. Uh, Eddie's able to start booking the NWA champion. He's got some very reputable names on his own roster, guys like Paul Jones, Boris Malenko, Bearcat Wright, Bob Roop, Dick Slater. And if I'm not mistaken, by the early 70s, uh, Eddie's in-ring career was winding down, so he was looking for top stars, right? Yes, without a yeah. doubt. It was, his career was winding down, and, and he, kept, he kept going in even though he knew he shouldn't, but he's just like any other wrestler. He didn't want to say that he couldn't wrestle anymore. That was his life. That was the, that's what he lived for, and it's so hard for wrestlers, myself included. And, and Train, I know you feel the same way, to get out of the ring because you love it so much, and it becomes your whole life. So it was... It was hard for him, and I'm sure that's what led to a lot of his problems later on. Is the fact that you know he couldn't he couldn't wrestle anymore, and it was it had just passed him over, and, and it, it sucks for him, and it sucks for every wrestler that has to go through it. You, you heard me say it before, Seth. Uh, I'm quoting Jake Roberts. So I'm going to give credit where credit's due. You take the most addictive drug in the world, nothing touches it. Knowing you can make a crowd do whatever you want. Am I wrong, Chris? No, no, a hundred percent, and. And, you know, Jake said, and I think that's where you're getting it from. You know, it, it was, it was addicting. It, it, it was, oh yeah. It yeah. was, it was, I mean, it's, it's power, it's emotion, it's, it's everything. And to walk away from that after you've been successful and had fun and been all over the place, uh, that's a hell of a thing to walk away from. And oh, it's yeah. very depressing. And, and, you know, he still had the business and it was booming, but it just, you know, it, it, it had passed him by physically. And that's, that was hard for him to deal with. But like you said, right. Seth, he, he had to create more stars. And I think I know where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Eddie had a young man that we can't tell the story of the history of championship wrestling from Florida. And we'll get into this in the next segment. 
Uh, we are talking. We're going to bring him up. We we talk about him a lot here on on Classic Wrestling Memories, but deservedly so. And that is, of course, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, who was very pivotal in the history of championship wrestling from Florida. He is the, the one of the main reasons that it went just bonkers. I mean, it started completely selling out, and that's when the wrestling heyday of the '70s started. And yeah. and there's so many stories about the sellouts and there was a six week period where people were scalping tickets for $200 a ticket. And this was 1974 <laughs> in the 70s. I mean, it, it got, yeah, it, it, it got that, that crazy down here in Florida just because of dusty roads turn and going from heel to baby and the creation of him as the American dream, the birth of the American dream. Exactly. Yep. So why don't we take a break right now and pay some bills. And when we come back on the other side, ladies and gentlemen, we will go all into that with, with our guest, Chris Nelson, talking about, you know, the birth of the American Dream, Dusty Rose. Absolutely. Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast... Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. If you're looking for a gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games, achievements, and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at youjustgotfragged.com, part of the a1-wrestling.com podcast family. Attention all time lords and ladies, Geekville Radio presents Examining the Doctor, a weekly look at everybody's favorite time lord, the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor to favorite and not-so-favorite episodes of Doctor Who. From Hartnell to Capaldi, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for classic and current Doctor Who fans alike. Examining the Doctor, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. Welcome back, wrestling fans, to Classic Wrestling Memories. Once again, talking championship wrestling from Florida. And I wanted to shift gears and talk a specific uh, angle. And I think if there, in my book, if there's one angle or storyline that you could use to define championship wrestling from Florida, and we can't seem to go through an episode without mentioning his name, but uh, in this case, the babyface turned in 1974 won American Dream Dusty Rhodes. And let me let me try to set the stage here, gentlemen. Um, it was the early 1970s, and Dusty was a heel. He and Dick Murdoch were the Texas Outlaws. And Dusty had uh, a match with uh, NWA world champion Jack Briscoe. Now, wasn't there an angle before the match where Dusty got a visual pin on Briscoe? Does that does that ring any bells? That I don't quite remember because I thought that uh, he was with he was basically in Gary Hart's army at the time with Pac Song, mm-hmm. and he was you know just he, he kept teasing a babyface turn for a long time. It, it had been a long time coming, and people were getting tired of seeing him being a heel. They wanted to cheer him so bad. That's what brought it on. But go ahead, Yeah, yeah I, I, the story the story I had heard, Seth, and I think I've told the story before, was that just what Chris was saying is that the, the crowd wanted him to be a babyface, 
And we've already talked previously on this episode about how brilliant a mind Eddie Graham was at reading people in psychology. He obviously saw that as the owner and the booker and the promoter. He had an idea to test that theory. And this is, this is I'm just coming from Kevin Sullivan. So, I mean, he knows the Florida area pretty well. He essentially had a match where Jack, even though Jack was the, the was a Florida-based guy, he was still the traveling NWA world champion. He had Jack come in and work a match with Dusty as the top guy who was still being pushed as a, as a heel, but he was the local guy too. And he had, uh, towards the end of the match, he, he told Jack, don't kick out of this pin attempt by Dusty. Just put your foot on the ropes. And if you understand how wrestling was in that time period, champions didn't heal or babyface. They didn't put their foot on the rope. They kicked out. And when yes. the crowd reacted to that, you know, that's when Eddie knew that his, his, his gut instinct was right. Dusty was right for a babyface turn. Because they, they, they didn't, they were like, oh my gosh, you know, he didn't, he, Chad Briscoe had to put his foot on the rope. That was the essential. Uh, do you, are you familiar with that story at all, Chris? Have you heard that one before? Yeah, I, I had heard that. It's been a long time since I heard that, but you're, you're absolutely right. It was, it was something that the champions just didn't do. They, you know, that would, that would be a cheap way out. And right. the NWA champions, they, they just didn't do that. You know, they kicked out, like you said. So that was, that was definitely a, uh, a moment that, like you said, Eddie Graham wanted to try it, and it, it happened, and it, you know, he could see the writing on the wall. The story that I heard, uh, a detailed encounter between Jack Briscoe and Dick Slater, where they were going to have a match with Dusty as the referee, and Dusty is decked out a complete like top hat and tails, and <laughs> Dusty elbowed Jack Briscoe from behind, uh, you know, just total cheap shot, and then Dick Slater counted the pin. So there was there was like a, a a visual pinfall, and yeah, I think this was really around the time he started calling himself the American Dream, but doing it as a heel. Gordon Soley would call him a self self proclaimed American Dream, and uh, like like you said, um, Briscoe put his foot on the ropes rather rather than kick out. Dusty was part of Gary Hart's stable, teaming with Pac Song, and Pac Song incorporated martial arts into his wrestling style. And the uh, the match would happen. I actually watched this match shortly before we uh, we got on the air here, uh, or at least highlights of it. Uh, Dusty teamed with Pac Song to face Eddie and Mike Graham. And during that match, uh, Hart and Song turned on Dusty, and Song bloodied Dusty with several chops to the head. Do I have, do I have that right? Yeah, it was it was basically uh, they Dusty ended up holding Eddie. I think he was holding Eddie and. He moved and Pac Song hit him right in the head, and it was they had just been going back and forth with him all night in the match, and and he had finally had enough there. So that one chop, that one to the head, he rolled out, and when he came back in the ring, he just completely cleared house, and the place went nuts. I mean, you can still hear it on the video. The place went absolutely wild. At first, there was silence because people were like, "Are we really seeing this?" And then they realized that they were getting what they wanted, so they just went nuts. This match would have been at the Fort, Fort uh, Homer Hesterly Armory, correct? Absolutely. Yes, sir, it was. Yeah, and you know, like that. we said uh, previously, that's where they filmed most of the good angles that they had going on. If something big was going to happen, they filmed it there at the Armory. And that's exactly what happened. They, uh, The people went nuts, all 6,000 of them. And in that sweaty cigarette smoke filled place, it just erupted and you can hear it on the video. I mean, I, I wish I was there that night. It was just electrifying. And that set off what, you know, that set off the next five years of just complete domination by championship wrestling from Florida. 
Now, I, 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 it's been a long time since I've seen the angle that, that you're talking about, Seth, and I have seen it before. And maybe it's something I'm thinking that happened the next TV taping, or maybe it happened later in the match. Isn't there somewhere, Chris, where where they went to attack Mike Graham and, like, Dusty essentially took the bullet for him, too, to help progress the storyline along to really solidify him as, as turned into a good guy? Yeah, that was that was earlier in the match, and, and it just, you know, you, ah. you could tell, you know, one thing after another. And, uh, yeah, that was in there, and then that, that just kept leading to something else and leading to something else. And, you know, they took about 25 minutes just to build that thing up getting to the the chop from pack song it was i mean it was it was great storytelling it was great angle writing it was phenomenal i mean he laid that out you know you, you, the kids today talk about their whole matches and that's not how it was back then you know you would call a, a beginning and you would call a finish and then you'd call the rest out in the ring but they right. laid this out methodically they laid this out because they wanted it to go over right. They knew they were filming it. They wanted this to happen the right way, the right sequence, and they planned the whole thing out. And that's what led to the explosion. Sometimes when things happen in today's wrestling, you don't get that explosion, but you sure got it that night. And I would, I would dare, I would dare say, during what was said then to what is talked about now, like you're saying, Chris, the only spot that was discussed in the locker room amongst those gentlemen was the one spot we're talking about where, where Dusty took the chop, you know, where, 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 where Eddie Graham moved and Dusty took the chop. That's probably the only spot that was discussed, and everything else was just four guys that knew what they were doing, calling it in the ring, feeling the fans, knowing what the, the story they were trying to tell, and you got what you got. And how could you go wrong? I mean, you know, Pac Song was, was a hell of a wrestler. He doesn't get a lot of credit for a lot of the stuff he did. You know, Florida champion, tag team champion. I mean, the, the guy was good. And, of course, you know about Mike Graham, Eddie Graham, and Dusty Rhodes. So, you really – and then you had Gary Hart on the outside. You, you couldn't go wrong. I mean, you had you had five of the best minds at the time. This was 1974. Those were five of the best minds, you know, not just in Florida, but in the wrestling business, period. Right. So, right. you know, right. Mike, Graham, he, Mike was up and coming. He, you know, he was, but he was still Eddie's son. He had been around it his entire life. So you can't right. discount him in any way, shape, or form. And I think our listeners need to understand the Mike Graham that they might know is the guy they saw at the end of his career at WCW or some of the stuff Vince has on his network where he's talking about things. That's not the Mike Graham that we're talking about. This is a young, white Mike Graham. I mean, this, he's young, he's good-looking, he's got an appeal to the, to the girls, he's a tough, scrappy guy with a legitimate amateur background the guy can get behind. He's not the guy you saw in the 90s. This is a, you know, this is a completely different Mike Graham, you know? Mike Graham, I take it in his prime, would uh, be on that uh, don't mess with list, you know, along with guys like, you know, Bret Hart and Hacksaw and, <laughs> you know? Right, I mean... I mean, he's not Danny Hodge, uh, who's another, obviously, pound for pound, be the toughest guy ever in the wrestling business, but he was a smaller guy you did not screw with. Pound for pound, Mike well, Graham I'll, is one of the toughest guys ever in the business, ever. I'll, I'll tell you something about Mike, just off the, uh, off the uh, cuffs here. He, when my partner and I were wrestling with the titles in 2001, we actually worked for Dusty for Turnbuckle Championship, and he put right. us in a match against the Raging Bull Manny Fernandez and Mike Graham. And oh, I'm sorry. Mike, <laughs> well, yeah, Manny, Manny was something else. But, uh, let me yeah, I've been in the ring with Mike Manny. Graham, 
Yeah, that was something else. He, uh, he, uh, let me tell you, Mike Graham, he, he said to us, he said, listen, I haven't been in the ring in six years, so take it easy on me. He went out there, you know, 51 or, or however old he was at the time. I think he was 51. He went out there, and it's like he never he never spent any time not in the ring. It was absolutely amazing, and it was probably my second favorite match of my entire world title run for that two years was against Mike Graham. Just, you know, just the, the aura and the mystique and just the thrill of working with him. So the man was awesome. I'll just put it at that. 51, six years of ring rust, and you couldn't have blown him up if you wanted to, could you? No, he, not at all. He blew us up without yeah. even trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Got to love those old timers. Old timers will give you a piece of humble pie, believe me. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you what. He, he could go and 51 years old, and, you know, we were wrestling 30 minutes a night, you know, five to seven nights a week, and he blew us up quick. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, again, we didn't call one thing except for the finish. We called it all out there. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, I, I don't know if people understand when you say five years of dominance. Uh, I, I, the mystique, I mean, a lot of what people know of Dusty is from the 80s here in the Carolinas. I don't think many current fans, and probably even some older fans that are especially outside the state of Florida and definitely outside of the southeast, they don't understand how big a star this made Dusty Rhodes, not just in Florida, Florida but globally and nationally. And he already was a pretty big star. How big he did this make him star. in your opinion? Well, I'll tell you exactly how big it made the only, him. The only way, if you weren't in Florida, is you could either trade tapes, which was still very new because not a lot of people had VCRs. The only way that you found out about wrestling in the South was by buying wrestling magazines. Yep. And, but he got so popular down here that Eddie Graham would actually have to send him away for a week or two or three or five or six, whatever he could get. He'd have to send him to New York. He'd have to send him to Texas. He'd have to send him to the Carolinas because he had to try to get other people over besides Dusty. I mean, it was it was one of those things. Everyone came to see Dusty, and they could care less about everyone else. And he right. said, God, you know, I, I, I got to start finding a way to get some other people over. So Vince would use him up, up north, or he would go out and work for the Von Erichs, or he would go to California. Everybody knew him from the wrestling magazine. And then once they, once they got him in, in the ring and they watched him wrestle, he had fans all over the place. I mean, I watched him. I watched him in Madison Square Garden in one of his first matches when really no one knew him, and he was the best match on the card. He got the best reaction, and that was because sure. he was such a star down here in Florida. I mean, the guy was absolutely amazing. After that angle, they did something like six six months of straight sellouts. I mean, every building, whether it was a high school gym or whether it was the Miami Convention Center, they sold out seven days a week for five or six years. It was, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And that led to the eighties and it, it just, it got bigger. I mean, wrestling in 84 was phenomenal in Florida. I mean, it was, they were still selling out buildings and dusty was still on top him and blackjack Mulligan. So, I mean, it just, they would bring in and people in and out to work with them but Dusty was always on top, and they were always making money. My understanding is, and this is the time frame, from 1974 to about 1980, 81, there we're talking about when he turned babyface. He, from a, from a pure monetary standpoint, 
He was the second highest paid guy in the business, only after Andre the Giant. And we know the kind yeah. of price that Andre demanded. And you have to, and all, with all due respect to the guys I'm giving a list, that means he's out earning guys like Perry Funk, uh, guys like superstar Billy Graham, guys like Bruno San Martino, guys like Antonio Inoki, because he's, he's going over to Japan. He's a star there. Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkel. These are all, Harley. Briscoes, Bruiser Brody. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. yeah we're, talking, we're talking guys who were WWF and IWGP and AWA and NWA champions, and he's, out, he's making more money than they are. Making more money. Than they, the only person who's making more money is Andre, and we all know how special Andre was. That's amazing. Oh, of course. Me, you know? Well, and the other thing with that, as far as Florida is concerned, he also owned a percentage of Florida Championship Wrestling at one point. Eddie had given him a percentage. So he ended up, he would make his wrestling money, and then he would make his little money on the side on top of that for however percentage of, of that that he owned. So he was making a ton of money. A ton. Right. You know, we've discussed that before. We've talked to other territories. That was not uncommon in the 70s, wrestling fans. Jerry Lawler owned part of our part of Memphis. Ole Anderson owned part of the Georgia office under the Briscoes. You know, Gorilla owned part of, of Vince Senior's product. That made a lot of money. They bought into the promotion, and that also explains why didn't go a whole lot of places. You know, Ole and pretty much stayed in the Carolinas and Georgia. We know Jerry pretty much stayed in Memphis. Dusty's that exception. Dusty owned part of the Florida office, but he was also still going all over the world. That 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 was also amazing to me too. You know. I, I remember hearing a, a, a Jerry Jarrett quote where he said, uh, you know, by today's standards, unless you're working for Vince, how many guys uh, are making a hundred grand a year that aren't working for Vince? Not too many. Not but many. Not many. Back in these territory day, days, there were probably four or five guys uh, per territory that were probably making that. And, and they didn't Close have to leave it. the territory, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And and that was why, you know, pretty much the baby faces would stay put and it was the heels that would, you know, travel right. to the different territories for the most part because the babies they would just be making phenomenal money. Like you said, they would have three, four or five main guys that were the guys that, that stayed there that were making the money and then they would just bring in the other heels and everyone would work the territories. And that's the thing, you know, I got into it. I got into wrestling right at the end of the territory system, and that's one thing that I would have loved to have done. If I was just 10 years older, if I'd have had 10 years before that, I would have been able to you know, go to all the territories. And, and I, God, I wish I could have done that. Oh, I, I've been told, I, I, I totally echo your sentiments, brother. I don't know how many old-timers I've had tell me. Just look at me and go, kid, with your size and your gimmick, you would have made a boatload of money in the territories. It is a shame. You were born 10 years too late. Believe <laughs> that. Yep. You know, and I and, and I know because I've seen your work. I mean, you were the, you're in that same boat. You had that old school style and would have made a lot of money back in the day. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, coming in back in 1991, you know, if I would have been six foot five and 300 pounds, I would have made you know a ton of money then. But unfortunately, I was five eleven and two thirty. So right, know, it didn't work right, right. Now. Now, to change, not to change topic, we're kind of still staying on the same topic. I know it's around this time that Dusty starts getting into the creative booking end of the territory. Well, do, you, do you have a, a particular year that that happened, or do you, are you not sure, Chris? I'm not really sure exactly when it was, but once everything took off for him, he started doing a lot of stuff on his own. You know, Eddie would like, give him a little bit of leeway to do you know, whatever he thought 
and that is that's where he started to really branch out. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think it was a particular year, but I think from '74 on, he started letting him have a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. But, it, but you know, because Dusty was gone a lot and would have to travel places, you know, you still mm-hmm. had guys booking like Dory Funk Jr. He was a booker for a very long time. Even Michael P.S. Hayes was a booker for a little while. Right, right. So you had uh, guys. Sol- that, that, Sullivan had a run in there, I think. And yep, Sullivan, absolutely. Gary Hart, Gary Hart, JJ yep. Dillon. Yep. Yeah. So you had, now, you know, I think that Eddie Eddie groomed him and let him do what he wanted to do, but I really don't think Dusty he, he didn't stay there. You know, he would be sent away Japan or whatever. So he really couldn't have done the full time Booker job at that time. When you say he gave him a lot of leeway, do you mean in the sense that he had a lot more, as they would say? You know the common, the, the you know the modern vernacular, creative control over his own stuff, or he would just have him booked yeah. on the show and say, kind of okay. Yeah, it, it was it, it was for his own character because Eddie right. still controlled everybody else. He wanted, you know, he wanted to be that guy that controlled everyone and and was able to tell them, okay, this is what we're doing, right. and this is what I want you to do. You know, it, it was creative control over his own character and, and what he had going I, I, on. I know some models in that time period would be you give one or you give a guy a couple of small pounds that you ran spot shows in, and I, I did I did not think that was what was going on with Dusty, and I, I thank you for the clarification. But but one thing I want to talk about when we talk about Dusty, part of the reason wasn't just the charisma and the promos and the in ring stuff which you talked about. Part of the reason he got over and it came there, he totally embraced this, and he I think he took a, a you know page out of Eddie's book he became very active like within the community there in florida active in civic things did he not and doing like almost essentially motivational speaking for lack of a better word for it oh absolutely you know? yeah he uh yeah. he was since he was a top star in florida he was right there with eddie you know if they if they had to pitch something to a boys club or you know if they were going to do an appearance here dusty was always there because he's the one that was on their tv he's the one that they came right. to see so anything, any, especially if it was a new business venture, he would bring dust. And you know, why would you not? I mean, you got the guy that's the most over. Of course, you're going to bring him to whatever you got going on. And people still loved Eddie Graham. That's the thing is everybody loved Eddie Graham because of all the things that he did, all of the donations, all of the civic things that he did to to make people's lives better. Everyone loved Eddie, and then everyone loved Dusty, and them together. I mean, how could you tell them no? Right. I think for me, in my opinion, is when Dusty doing that kind of stuff, with his character essentially being the common man, look, I'm the son of a plumber. If you work hard, you can live the American dream like I have. That's, that's as much as him living his gimmick and, and selling it in a time when kayfabe was, was in practice as Ric Flair, you know, buying a limousine and really riding around a limousine, you know. Or, or, or any oh, other star, you can, any other star from that era, you can think. It's the same type thing. It, it's that. It's that. Uh, you know. It, it's a uh, gimmick enhancement. If you, if you want to put a term on it, you know. And oh, Dusty was so Dusty was so believable as that common man because he was that guy. That really was him. Uh, that's and, the shit. He, he said, actually, I was the son of a plumber. He was, and and you know, he actually drove around. He had a big white Cadillac with gold stars on it that said "Gold Dust" on it, and it said "Dusty." And you know, he drove that big Cadillac around. I mean, he lived. He wasn't trying to be, you know, inconspicuous and hiding himself. He drove around and wanted everyone to know that that was him. He was there. Yeah. So well, he was up here in the Carolina. Up here in the Carolinas, ten years later, 
he got rid of the Cadillac, but he bought him like a brand new Mercedes Benz convertible. And when we have those nice, you know, spring and fall days here in the Carolinas, he dropped that top so everybody in Charlotte knew who was driving around. That was the dream, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how he fit in that thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, those those are some small cars, and, and, and yeah, well, he was a big guy. Sight to see. You know, it was a sight to see. Plus, he was like <laughs> he was like six two, you know. So I mean, he was yeah. he was tall. I don't know how he fit in it. <laughs> Okay. It was a sight to see. I can tell you that. <laughs> okay. I, I, I got to do this, and I'm going to have to stand up to do it, so give me a moment. Okay. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> I'm the Tower of Power. Too sweet to be sour. I'll make your back crack and your liver quiver. Oh, <laughs> uh, You didn't go with the one I thought you were going to go with. I thought you were going to go with, if you got to ride by, you might as well ride by the Cadillac, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! <laughs> Look at the listeners now, here. See, I, thought, I thought you were just gonna. I thought you were just gonna go with you know. <laughs> let me test something, if you will. Mac and Dream Dusty Rolls. Top, top, and cola. You know that's a. You know who does a great one. Dusty is uh, your partner Vito. Oh, he does. A, oh, he does a fantabulous Dusty. But my favorite one that he does is he can do uh, Jimmy Valiant. He can do the Boogie Woogie yes. Man. Yes, yes. I mean, it sounds just like him. All right. Before we switch gears, Chris, the listeners have heard me tell a story about my interaction with Dusty when I worked for Turnbuckle, and I don't think Please, you heard that yes. story. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you off air. But let me hear yours. I'm sure you've got a story about working for Dusty, just to give the listeners an idea of the kind of man he was. Well, it was you know I, the the girl that I was living with at the time. I had to mm-hmm. wrestle for Dusty on her birthday, and. Uh, he was gracious enough to get off, get on the phone with her and wish her a happy birthday and talk to her for a while. And, uh, you know, she, she thought that was me doing Dusty. And I'm like, no, that was Dusty. And that was her favorite wrestler. You know, she grew up watching. So he was just, he was just always cool and working for Turnbuckle. He was very relaxed and he was, he was just real cool. And it was, it's like there was no pressure around him. He had a lot of guys that were, you know, that were his friends that were on the card, the Manny Fernandez and the Mike Grahams and Glacier and, and, you know, people that he was comfortable with and that he liked. And it, it, there was, like, no pressure. It was it was so different seeing him in WCW when, you know, he was responsible for Million Dollar TV as opposed to right. him being, you know, at Turnbuckle just doing his own thing. So, I mean, it was, yeah. know, there were a, a lot of different stories, but that's the main difference that I – that I saw in him, and, and it was good yes. to see that. My, my story, for those that haven't heard it, and I don't think you have, Chris, is I'll, I'll make it much briefer than I normally do. Essentially, Dusty wanted to bring me back after my first match, and he called me into the little office they had back there and was talking to me, and I unfortunately had to tell him no, not because I didn't want to work for Dream, but because I'd already had a bookie, and I didn't want to double book myself. You understand as a former wrestler, you know, you don't double book. Absolutely. And, I, Absolutely. and I, told him this, I told him this much, and I told him, you know, I have all the respect in the world for you, Dusty. I grew up in the Crockett territory. You're, you're like a god to me, but I would not do that to you. If you had me booked, I wouldn't take another booking. His response, he, he didn't get mad. He didn't raise his voice. He just looked at me, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, you know, kid, that, that, that's, that's a shame. You know, I'm, I'm only like a, a three-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I'm one of the biggest draws ever in this business. I'm one of the greatest baby faces of all time. I'd hate for you to lose the opportunity and learn a little bit about baby facing, but it's okay. I understand. That's, that's fine. You can take the book <laughs> in and we'll call you back. <laughs> he, and, and, you know, I, I, I was young and dumb in the business at the time. I was a little upset as I walked out, but as I've looked back on it, 
he wasn't lying to me. I, I think he really did care about me and wanted to help me out. And he wasn't mad at me. He understood, but he was frustrated, you know, and he should have been a jerk and I'm glad he wasn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, if, if it would have been, if you would have been canceling his booking for someone else's booking, you know, he would have been livid and off the chain. So, I, you know, he should have known that, uh, you know, and it, look, all you have is your word. You know, it, people are going to find out if you are working another booking, and especially with the Internet today. So it's not like you could have gotten away with it because your name would have been on the Internet as working that show. This was a booking so, for Bill Barron's in Georgia. He was running in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. He would have definitely found out, you know. <laughs> he would have found out for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, but, of, of course, without a doubt. But I'm sure that he understood. But, you know, he wanted you on, on Turnbuckle. And, and, you know, it wasn't his career. He just, you know, he's like, let me tell you, I wanted to train David. But, you know, you did what, you, you did what was right. You did what I would have done. And, oh, you know, you, you did what you did later. what was right. He did have me back a few weeks later, so he kept his word on that one too. You know, I, I can't, yeah, I can't I complain. And, 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 and he saw, he note, saw what he liked, and he he had you back. And, and, and side note, uh, Chris, I'm sure will back me up on this. First rule to any of those of you out there who are thinking about joining this crazy, wonderful brotherhood we call wrestling, first rule: make your bookings, no matter mm-hmm. what. Yep. Yep. But I guess uh, absolutely something that uh, Dusty and Eddie Graham had in common is they were both booking and uh at least at separate times but they, they were booking with themselves as the top baby faces i mean because correct me if i'm right. wrong most of eddie graham's career he was a baby face right oh, yeah. oh absolutely i mean he was a heel in new york when he first came in with jerry graham mm-hmm. but after he left jerry graham when he came to florida i mean he was he was a baby face and that's just how he you know that's how he ended up you really can't be the face of the company back then and be a heel just, yeah, know, especially with, with with everything that he was doing with the Florida Sheriff's Youth Ranch and, and all the different charities, you know, him being a heel would not have worked, not even for a day. Because people back then, and trust me, I'm from Florida, I grew up at the matches, people back then thought it was 100% legit. It was a shoot and all the way. It was a shoot all the way, and people would not have, they would not have come and, and given their hard-earned money or supported anything charitable if Eddie was a, was a heel. So he knew where his bread was buttered, and, and he kept it going the same way. And God bless him because he did exactly what he needed to do at that time. And, you know, it's not like today, you know, where there's really no heels or baby faces or shades of gray. Back then, you were a good guy or you were a bad guy. That's right. what it was. So, well, you know, you, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you talk about it being, a, being 100% shoot in the fans' eyes. I think it's as good a transition as we can. We've talked a lot about Dusty, and obviously he was what really blew up the territory, was the top star for, you know, essentially 74 to the end of the territory, uh, which we'll discuss later in a little bit. But I want to talk about some of the other stars that came through. One of the first ones that comes to my mind when I think of championship wrestling for Florida and mine, uh, who definitely made you believe, and if you didn't, you could come down to the building and he would show you how real wrestling was. It would be Bob Roop. Uh, yeah. Do you have any memories or stories about Bob Roop? <laughs> You know, my, my favorite story, I was, I was a a young kid and I Mm -hmm. actually ran into Bob after a wrestling match in a seven 11 where he was buying some beer Uh and, um, he pretty much scared the crap out of me. I, I didn't know what to say to him. I mean, you know, I was, I think I was 11 or 12 years old and half of me wanted to get his autograph, but at that time, 
he had his head shaved, you know, halfway, and he had face paint on it, and he was Meha Singh, and, you know, I oh, really didn't all- know how to approach him. <laughs> oh, this was all in your yeah, darkest I, days, okay. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was when he was with Kevin Sullivan. This was about 1984-85, and I didn't right. know what to say to the guy, and he literally scared the crap out of me. And uh, then I ended up running into him after Florida Championship ended a couple years later um, at a fair convention that I was at. Mm-hmm. I was about 13 then, and I ended up uh, taking a picture with him. And, you know, I actually said to him that I was very happy that he grew his hair back. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this, and, and he was plugging other wrestling at this point because Florida Championship had just ended. And, uh, right. you know, you want to talk about a legit tough guy that nobody messed with that was bob roop and you know to a lot of people he kind of he kind of looked soft because he kind of had a baby face and you know he was a olympic wrestler you know and and all these decorated you know wrestler but he he was a big man but he he was a big man he was a big man but he didn't have the lex luger road warrior build but this guy was still what six five six six at least 285 at least yeah he was he was big and he was bad and that was who, you know, that was who um, Eddie used as his uh, enforcer. That was who Eddie, you know, would have train. You know, he would have him try people out. Another one that oh, yeah. he had try people out of the sportatorium was Gordon Nelson. And um, I remember working with, with uh, Gordon and WCW when he was doing the rings. And we sat at the bar one night and he told me stories of him going in there and, and just absolutely destroying people because then he would say, okay, you know, you think you're a wrestler, you think you're tough. Well, I want you to wrestle my janitor and he would be sweeping the floor and he would look like the janitor and the janitor would come in there and it was Gordon Nelson and he would stretch him and he would break something and you never see the guys again. Funny how that works and out, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, you know, and could you imagine the guy, you know, he goes to work the next day and he's like, well, you know, I, I went down to be a wrestler. And what happened? Well, the janitor broke my arm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would just for, be an embarrassing thing. For those of you who question what we're, or wonder what we're talking about with Bob Roop and, you know, and these type of guys, go on YouTube, enter in Bob Roop, R-O-O-P, Sugar Hold. That's all you have to do, and that will that will explain all. He, he got chuckled out of you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I think Absolutely. Vince might even have some of that. I think Vince might even have some of that footage on his network. It's it's brutal, and it gives it makes me shudder because it gives me some throwbacks to when I broke into the business. But I digress. <laughs> and he was an NCAA champion. Exactly, I, and it is on the network, um, and I I did see that, and yeah, that that guy did not know what was coming, and then he got chased out of the ring and got chased out of the building, and he got his butt kicked when he got out of the building. But and I can guarantee you, he never... Guys, <laughs> talk about other big stars that were produced down there um, that really got started, uh, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., sure. Paul Jones... Yep. And one of my one of my absolute favorites that is, you know, had he not been in the plane crash, he would have been phenomenal. He was phenomenal. Was uh, Buddy Colt, and yeah. you know, you what, mean, I you mean, mean, what a hard man. Buddy Colt or Bob, Bob, Bobby Shane? Which one you talk? Which one? I'm, well, they were, that was the same plane crash, um, and I'm uh, talking about Buddy Colt. But that oh, was yeah, that's the same, the same one. Same plane that, crash. That was when Gary yeah, Hart was, was in the, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the same one. They were all in the same one, and uh, and it, Buddy, it was Buddy's plane, and he was flying, and the weather was bad, and you know there was a bunch of different issues, and they told him, you know, he couldn't see the the lights coming in, and he ended up putting it in the bay in Tampa. 
And uh, yeah, Bobby Shane was the only one that died. Um, but Gary Hart, you know, he broke, I think he broke his back and it cost him his career and Buddy Colt could never wrestle again. And it was just, it was just horrible. I mean, you know, you had the plane crash in Carolina with Rick Flair and Johnny Valentine. Then you had the one in Florida that, you know, Bobby Shane, for those of you that don't know, he was only 27 years old, but he had already been in the business for 10 years. And Dusty was, uh, Eddie and Dusty, they were grooming him to basically be the booker one day because he was just that good of a worker. And you want to talk about a guy that had a mind for the business and everything ended that night. I think it was 1977. And just that plane crash, you know, it, it killed Bobby Shane. And oh, to think of what he would have done in the 80s as a wrestler, you know, oh, yeah. and maybe even into the 90s, the guy probably would have had a Hall of Fame career, and he would probably we'd probably be inducting him into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, a lot of fans probably, current modern fans don't know that. He is definitely a name worth looking into. Playboy Bobby Shane did the great nature boy, cocky heel kind of gimmick, you know, dress nice, Bockwinkle, that kind of vibe. Um, and he's coming into Florida right off a pretty successful run as the booker. You're talking about his creative uh, booked in Australia, and it's waning days when Jim Barnett was running it as World Championship Wrestling, which at the time was one of the big, if not the biggest territory in the world. So here's a 27-year-old guy who has already seen a lot in the business and unfortunately lost him in that crash. And have, you had a, have you ever heard uh, Gary Hart tell the story or read, read his accounts of, of that crash before, Chris? Yes, I actually, I had, um, I actually saw the video of Gary talking about that. Where he, I mean, essentially that, that scar on his nose that you will notice on later things in like WCW listeners, that was from the crash. It essentially ripped the skin off of his nose. They, they hit so hard. Broke both his legs and, and like said, broke his back. He still somehow, and it pulled his clothes off. That's the thing that's amazing to me. The impact actually yeah. took his, he's naked. And here's this guy with a, a bloody face like something out of a Freddy Krueger movie and all these broken bones, and he still had the wherewithal to climb out of the bay and make it to somebody's door, knocking on the door in the middle of the night, call the call the you know, ambulance. We need help. That, and he also was. and he also was able to help the paramedics lift Bobby Shane's body yep. onto the yep. stretcher. Yep. So I yep. mean, it was it's crazy. You know, it was it was amazing. Just just the, you know, God, both of those plane crashes really ended some careers that were amazing already, but would have been super amazing. Right after that right. you know it's really sad when you just just bobby shane and johnny valentine just those two guys right there are you kidding me oh i watched yeah. johnny valentine oh. i watched uh, about two hours worth of his matches the other day on youtube just because uh, i just wanted to just because i wanted to see how great he was again because he's one of my favorites right yeah well so I mean, we're, we're talking a lot of tough guys coming out and, and guys who legitimately you know, shoot on you. Another guy that comes to mind for me out of Florida is Hiro Matsuda. Oh God, yes. He uh, he trained a lot of the you know newer guys like Lex Luger and Dewey Forte and Ron Simmons, but he was really instrumental in you know he he owned a piece of the office too, and he was always wrestling. He would do a lot of. Uh, he would do a lot of tag matches at the Sportatorium for TV, and he would be the on the team that lost, but he would never take the pin. And right. um, you know, he was just—he was amazing. He was—he was tough as nails, and could do all these calisthenics. And you just—you didn't look at him and say, "Oh, wow, this guy is—is is, you know tough." But he would literally almost kill you. 
I mean, if he wanted mm-hmm. to, he could do it in two seconds. The guy was tough as nails. Well, didn't Hulk Hogan tell the story that uh, when when he was trying to break into training, that Hero broke his broke his ankle or broke his leg? Right. On who was that? Uh, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Hogan. And that was true. That uh, he yeah. he broke his leg and said, you know, come back when you heal if you want to. So that's what they would do. They would try to they would try to mark you up. You know, break your leg, break your wrist, break something on Dislocate you. Dislocate shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. To, to see if you would come back, see if you were tough enough. Uh, interesting side note for you personally, Chris. Uh, do you know Hero also trained Sean Oil? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, and yes, you felt every bit of that when you were in the ring with him, didn't you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I tell you what, he, um, they were a great tag team, uh, Sean Royal and uh, and, and Russ Chris Champion. Well, oh, Sean and Chris the Champion. Oh, yeah. the new breed. Yeah, they uh, they they started in Florida about '86. You know, towards the yep. end of it, and uh, and he was trained by Hiro Matsuda. And you know, Hiro he didn't train a ton of people, but the ones that he trained were really, really good, except for, with the exception of Dewey Forte. Dewey Forte was just not a good wrestler. A lot of people probably have never even heard of him. That's because he never went. I'll tell you a quick story about Dewey Forte. He never went anywhere. Um, He was in a match at the Sportatorium, and um, the referee told him it was time to go home, and he literally hopped out of the ring and started walking back to the dressing room. Wow. That's and, and that's one hundred percent true. Uh, he scored yeah. high on the wonder list test, didn't he? Wow. <laughs> well, I got I got a uh, quick list here of wrestlers that Hero trained. Uh, Hulk Hogan. This is not. I, I, that's obviously not a complete list, but just some names out, out of a hat. Hulk Hogan, the Great Muda, Paul Orndorff, Scott Hall, Lex Luger, and Bob Orton Jr. and Ron Simmons. So, with the exception right. of Muda and Luger, all of those are Hall of Famers. He also trained Brian Blair, who was another one. Right. And, and, and I worked with uh, Brian. Brian was huge in the Florida office in the early oh, 80s yeah. and mid-80s, and, and I actually wrestled Brian about 100 times. So uh, he could go, too. All of all of his guys that the hero trained, their calisthenics and their you know their cardio was far superior to anyone else. Uh, you, look, you look who trained hero himself, Ricky Dozen and Carl Gotch. You don't get much more old school than that. That's no, the, he, all, he, he didn't learn how to work. He learned how to shoot. <laughs> he, <didn't, laughs> he learned how to work getting in the ring. He learned how to shoot in his training with those two guys. But well, a couple other tough guys that come to my mind that are also huge Florida stars, Mr. Wonderful Paul Warndorf and Dangerous Dick Slater. Oh, yes. Now, Dick Slater, you know, he was from Tampa and oh, yeah. went, to high, went to high school with Mike Graham. And you want to talk about a guy that, you know, whether it was in a bar, whether it was in high school, whether it was in – wherever if he wanted to fight he he was ready to fight he didn't back down from anywhere he's nope. one of the toughest people that uh you know when people talk about tough wrestlers he's one of the toughest that uh that people talk about and he was, he's right there from tampa himself yeah, of course there's that famous story of when he wasn't even in the business yet he was just a local teenager got mad with john matuzak you know the former all-american at the university of tampa all pro yep. defensive lineman for the Ra- oakland raiders he got a little friendly with Dick's girlfriend at the time, and here's Dick, a 17-year-old kid, beating up a college football player. That, that's, oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and there's a reason why they called Paul Wondorf the Tampa Bull. Of course, uh, Paul, I don't believe, is originally from Florida. I think he's originally from Georgia. But he, he got his start in the business after playing football at the University of Tampa. Isn't that correct, Chris? That is that is correct. Yeah, he uh, he moved down here, and he went to high school in Brandon, and uh, which is – on the outskirts of Tampa, 
and played against Mike Graham and uh, wrestled against Mike Graham. So that's how he got into it was he was he was a football player and a wrestler and he knew Mike Graham and he was let me tell you what, I was there the night that Paul Orndorff beat up Big Van Vader. So I <laughs> I've seen it, you know, I've seen it firsthand. And uh you know, I mean that was, personally that was Paul I, I, I was with one with uh, one bad arm. That was Paul with one yeah, bad arm. Paul, that was Paul with uh with one bad arm and he was wearing a pair of flip flops. So yep. yeah, he was like, know, it was yeah. It, it, it was something else, and and I would I would have never messed with Paul. I mean, you know, I always wanted to to have a match with Paul, and I never got to work with him. And that's one of the few guys that that I I got to wrestle pretty much everyone I wanted to that used to be in the old Florida territory, except for except for Paul Orndorff, and and I really wish I could have had a match with him. Oh, Paul Orndorff has such a sweet him. mustache now. Oh yeah, he looks good. Yeah, he looks good. Yeah. Yeah, Spencer, considering all he's been through health-wise, he's doing pretty good, you know? I, unfortunately, I had a, a hunting trip lined up with him down in South Georgia that got wound up getting canceled. I, 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 I wish I could have got to go on that hunting trip. That would have been a – with those type of deals, I used to shut up, like those fishing trips I used to have in Wahoo. Wahoo, a guy who – I mean, Wahoo went everywhere, but he was a big star in Florida, was he not? Oh, he was huge in Florida. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't really stay down in Florida for long. He would come in you know, and, and come in and out and stay a week or two because he was all over the world. He was in Japan. He was in Canada. He was all over the place. And, you know, he would come in for a little while and then he would be gone again. But he was, right. he was phenomenal. And, you know, I actually, speaking of a fishing trip, I went, uh, I went on a fishing trip in Aruba with Brian Blair, Steve Kern and Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey. Nice. And, I tell you what, the stories that Steve Kern could tell about growing up with Mike Graham and Eddie pretty much being a second father to him, and, you know, those stories were phenomenal. I, I, I loved listening to him talk about Eddie and Mike and Florida Championship because he was there, you know, since he was 13 years old. That's the thing about Steve Kern is here's a guy in his youth was a white meat baby face as one of the fabulous ones, but then – kind of got old and ugly and then 10 years later he's in wwe as skinner yeah <laughs> yeah but I also like, those are two different gimmicks <laughs> but also just my opinion it is what it is that to me was not dissimilar from the polka dots with dusty that was vince kind of ribbon on the square to steve that's just my opinion you know mm-hmm. oh he's a pretty boy and he's from the south that's just my opinion you know but god love well, steve, he got a paycheck from- out of it <laughs> and then he went from being Skinner to being uh, Doink number two. So you know, he, right. uh, it, obviously Vince didn't want him to use his face out there. You know, so he kept making him cover it up or grow a beard. But, but his uh, Florida, you know, his Florida days were was, not like that at all, was it? No, no, he was he was a, a clean shaven baby face, and then when he came back as one of the fabulous ones with Stan Lane, I mean, they ruled Florida. In the in the early mid '80s, they ruled Florida. But in the '70s, mid '70s, late '70s, it was all Steve Kern and Mike Graham. They were the tag team champions. Uh, Steve Kern was the Florida champion. I mean, they uh, I'll tell you what, they were a, a damn good tag team. And I mean, I, Steve I Kern, he's just a great mind in the business himself. I don't know. I can't remember who told me this. It might have been Dutch. It might have been somebody else. That they, that really. There was a, a, a real tough for Eddie to decide there at the beginning of, of their careers who to really push as the top guy. Mike as the white meat baby face, but he had trepidation there because, you know, Mike was his son. 
And we know what happens sometimes when promoters push their sons. And that's not speaking ill of Mike. Mike was much better than a great ghoulist or somebody like that. But also, Steve. Steve was a little bigger than Mike. And the thing Steve had going for him was, wasn't he like a Vietnam vet or his father was a World War II vet or something, or highly decorated, something like that? His father, yeah, his father was actually a, um, and I'll tell you a quick story about Steve. His father was actually a, uh, he was a combat vet. He was he was in World War Two, and he was in Vietnam. He was a prisoner of war in both wow. in both wow. wars. So he was he was literally a war hero. And Vince McMahon called Eddie Graham. Vince McMahon Senior called Eddie Graham, and he said, "You know, I need to make a good baby face. You know, I don't know who I should build up." And he, this is when he started pushing Bob Backlund, and Eddie told him that what he needed to do was bring Steve Kern up there. He said because his dad is a two-time, you know, war hero and, and prisoner of war, and and he will be your baby face. And Vince ended up taking Bob Backlund. But I really think that if uh, – and Bob was good, but I think that if Steve Kern was in that position, I think that they would have made more money. And I think that Steve would have done better in the long run than Bob because Bob was a great amateur, but Bob didn't have the emotion. He didn't know how to sell like Steve Kern did. And, and let's be honest, Steve, worked, Steve was a better-looking guy that would have sold the women better than Bob did. Absolutely. And he was, and he was a better talker than Bob. Absolutely. And we don't need – we talk about – I'm sure you'll back us up because every other guest I've had on here has backed me up. It is much easier to talk them into building than it is to – have a good wrestling match getting them in the building. Mm-hmm. That's something some fans still don't understand. <laughs> no, they don't. Exactly. No, well, and that's talk- exactly the truth. We were talking about Wahoo earlier, and it made me think of another earlier star from the 60s in Florida that a lot of people don't associate with Florida, but Joe, but, but, but Joe Scarpa, who would later on oh, become yeah. Chief Jay, Jay Strongbow in the WWF, who's probably what he's most known for. But he was a huge yep. star with a legit amateur background in, in Florida in the 60s, was he not? He was, and he, uh, you know, he ended up teaming with Don Curtis a lot, and he was, he was huge down here in the '60s and early '70s, and that was, you know, that was before Chief J. Strongbow, and he's, you know, he's actually, uh, he's not Indian at all, you know, he's, uh, he's Italian, yeah, he's Italian, but uh, he ended up being an Indian, and uh, he was when he was down here in Florida, he was, he, everyone loved him. I mean, he was a he was a great baby face, and uh, that's what led him to become Chief J. Strongbow. He learned everything in Florida. And yeah, I, the, the, the funny thing about Chief J. Strongbow it's it's not funny. It it just it it shows you how diverse some inspirations can be. Because Raven credits Chief J. Strongbow as being his favorite wrestler growing up. Raven, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, Scotty's from Florida originally too. Right, Scotty the Body. <laughs> but I yeah. Digress. And he grew up in Florida. That was that was the wrestling that actually, and he'll tell you this, that's the wrestling that formed him, was championship wrestling from Florida. And his favorite territories were CWF and Memphis. The first territory he worked in, the territory he grew up in. And those are two of the most old school territories you can get. I know that, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time, and you can't really talk about the be- the beginning and the middle unless you also talk about the end of Florida championship. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Because okay, that can, was, I mention, you know, can I mention one more? Can I mention one more name real quick before we get on that? Oh, that absolutely. There was one other name, and the reason I'm bringing because personally, he was a friend of mine, and, and God rest his soul. You talk about Indians, you can't not talk about cowboys. Black Jack Mulligan, one of the biggest stars ever in Florida. Oh God, yes, uh, and he was he was huge. He was a nice guy, 
And um, I'll tell you a quick story, and then I'll let you tell a story because I want to hear your black tech story. But uh, okay, he, um, somebody told me there was a girl I went to school with, and she told me that some wrestler had just bought her house. And I asked her who it was, and and she said black something. And I I was I thought she was lying, so I devised a plan that my friend and I would we would go under the guise of selling candy bars. So we took some candy bars and we biked our way three miles to this girl's house. And as we were walking up to the front door, I mean this this was out in a big pasture somewhere all by itself. As we were walking up to the door, I literally saw Blackjack standing there. And I'm like, oh, my God. And we knocked on the door. He came to the door. And I'm like, you're Blackjack Mulligan. Me and my friend are just, we're dying on the inside. And we're like, do you want to buy some candies? And he gave us, you know, $2. And we gave him two candy bars. And he was nice enough to sign an autograph for both of us. But that was my Blackjack awesome. story. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, I got to know Blackjack later in his life because he trained with my mentor, Susan Green, under Joe Blanchard, Tony Blanchard's dad. And he had a place up here on the North Carolina South Carolina border in the mountains. And uh, a guy got to know Black Jack through Susan. And uh, I was up at his house for a visit. Uh, and this is before his health had taken a turn for the worse. And he had to move, you know, move where he could be closer to family. And we were sitting out on his porch. And, uh, you know, we started drinking iced tea, I think, and probably wound up working to beer by the end of the night. But just sitting out there looking across the lake there. And it was really pretty. And things got kind of quiet. And I asked him a question I asked all the old timers I, I get to know like that. What was your favorite territory to work back in the day? And he thought about it. I could see, you know, he had that, he sometimes Black Jack had this really inquisitive look on his face. Like he was thinking in real deep thought, you know, and he said, well, you know, I love the Carolinas. That's why I'm here. And I'm a Texas boy. I love Texas. He said, but I, I think I might have to say Florida. And I said, why? And, and, and I said, if you don't mind telling me why's that Black Jack. And he said, um, the women look good. You were never far, too far from a beach and there's no taxes. And then he left it that. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's, that's a good enough reason for me. And I've heard that from a lot of guys that work that territory that, you know, you know as well as I do. I spend a lot of time and money in a tanning bed. You just have to do that if you're a wrestler. Uh, you don't have to do oh, that yeah. if you work in Florida. You didn't have to do that if you're in Florida. You just got up just in the morning outside. and went out on the beach. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I was sorry, very that was glad to but that was my Black Jack story, and I think what he said probably rings true for all the great talent that went through Florida. We didn't name, we didn't go into detail, but Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin and the Briscoe Brothers and the Funks, and we could go on yeah, and on and on. Fullers, the Sheep Herders, uh, you know, sure, sure. The young, the young bloods, yeah, Jake, could, Jake Roberts. We yeah. could, we could go through so many, but you're right, Chris. I don't think you can really tell the story without the end. Uh, that was kind of a tragic, uh, you know, story and uh, maybe a cautionary tale too. What were the events surrounding the death of championship wrestling for Florida, Chris? Well, and they had a huge show in Miami. It was basically called Lord of the Ring, and it was the main event was Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, and Dusty Rhodes won the match, and he also took a good amount of the money, a good amount of the gate proceeds because, you know, he owned part of the territory or whatever. And now I don't know if he took more than Eddie thought he was going to take or whatever, but there was some problems there. And Dusty was also going up to Carolina. So he was taking a lot of talent with him. He was taking the Ron Basses and the Black Barts and Barry Windham and, you know, so JJ Florida, 
JJ, and, and basically Florida was about to be down some of its key wrestlers, and Eddie had a lot of personal problems. He was an alcoholic, and he had some land dealings that were kind of shady at that point, and there was a very good chance he was about to go to jail uh, over all this, and once the business started going down in 85, once Dusty left, and then you had the... Uh, his land dealings going on. He killed himself on Super Bowl Sunday. And the thing was, is he went to shoot himself. He put the gun in his mouth and he went to shoot himself and he flinched. So he actually blew his, uh, the, the bullet came out the side of his face and he kind of blew his jaw and his teeth and his whole side of his face off when he would hit that shot. And then after he did that, he put the gun to his head. And that was when he pulled the trigger. Now, he didn't die right then and there. He was alive for about one more day because Mike Graham was actually at the Super Bowl. And he had to fly back that night. And when he got there, you know, he said, Dad didn't want to live like this. And they basically told him that uh, he was never going to be any more than a vegetable. So they pulled the plug on him and he died that night. But there were just a lot of personal problems. And, and I think that Eddie just didn't see a way out of it. And... You know, that was, I mean, it was, it was a major shock and it was a major, major blow to the wrestling business because everybody respected Eddie Graham. He was an NWA president for a while, right? Absolutely. Several times. And, and he knew that his reputation, you know, with this stuff that was about to come out was never going to be the same. And, you know, he ended his life and Mike Graham tried to keep the business going. He tried to keep it afloat. They brought in a bunch of new talent. They tried to create stars. Gordon Soley was still there. Um, everyone was trying. Even Dusty came back in 1987, 88, and they changed the name to the PWF, and he tried to build it back. But at that point, it was just too far gone. So 85 was really when it started going down, and by the end of 85, it was completely done, and they had shut it down. And just that year before, they were drawing huge houses uh, they did a series of matches called the Walking Tall Matches, and it was Dusty and Blackjack against Ron Bath and Black Bart, and they did that all over the territory, and it, it sold out everywhere. They were doing huge houses, so 84, they were still kicking butt, and then by 85, the end of 85, it was all over, and there was nothing they could do to revive it, and it just, it, you know, the good part about it was it made a lot of stars. And on top of that, for the fans, even myself as a fan, it it was my childhood. It's it's one of the things that I remember more than anything about my childhood. You know, the only time I saw my dad was when we went to wrestling. So, you know, it was, for the fans, it was amazing. For the wrestlers whose careers got made in Florida, it was amazing. And, you know, it was truly one of the best territories of all time. And, you know, it ran from you know, the forties up until the mid eighties. So that's a, that's a hell of a run right there. And I just, I wish it would have kept going, but at that point, you know, Vince McMahon was about to do WrestleMania and the business had, had changed and it was changing and the Florida style wouldn't have continued with Vince McMahon and everything like that. Vince would have come in and eventually would have taken everything over. And that's, of course, what he did. But it wasn't it wasn't it about '87 when Mike was trying to revive it that Crockett came in and bought what was left and absorbed it yep. into his. Yeah, 
Yeah. That's exactly when it was. You know, they sold uh, they sold everything to Crockett, and you know, it was it was that tape that tape library is something else. I mean, right. could you imagine all those matches? You know, they taped everything from the Armory, and then you have right. the Lakeland Civic Center, Miami Convention Center. You know, they would tape all these different little spot shows, and every major angle of all time for Florida Championship Wrestling is in that thing. I mean, millions of dollars of videos. I mean, it's just amazing. I would have loved to have had that tape collection. And now Vince owns it all. Hopefully he'll put it, you know, on the network a little bit more than he has. Yeah. Three things I wanted to mention really quick, because I know we're we're running out of time. Uh, There is a YouTube channel that I would highly recommend. It's just called CWF Video Archives. Um, And it's got a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, And really, I think the demise, it, it was kind of that double whammy of Dusty leaving for the Crockett's. And I, Mike Graham uh, sums it up as that that broke Eddie's heart that that uh, you know Dusty left, and then you know following year or whenever it was uh, Eddie kills himself. So the top star and basically the architect of the promotion are gone. You know, I think it's pretty easy to see why things went went south so quickly. And really, the sad thing is, you know, Eddie Graham shot himself to death. Mike Graham shot himself to death and Mike Graham's son shot himself to death. So that that's really pretty darn yeah. depressing when you think about it. Yeah. And I, I, I went to Mike Graham's funeral and it, it was, it was a very sad time because people weren't expecting it. And the, um, the best talker, a lot of people got up there and said things, but the best person that did was uh, Steve Kern and he really drove it home. And, uh, they were they were the best of friends, and I think Steve took it probably harder than anybody. And um, you know, it's just sad. It's it's sad that that it had to go like that. And Mike Graham even said, you know, hey, my father killed himself, my son killed himself. Obviously, I was a piece of crap son and a piece of crap father, and that was one of the reasons why he did it. Yeah, it's sad all the way around. Sure is. Well, I don't want to end on a dour note. So, I, I, you know, I would want to tell our listeners, I suggest going on the network, going to the YouTube channel Seth mentioned, and, and don't think about Championship Wrestling Florida from Florida the way it ended. Look at what it was in the 60s and 70s and the early 80s. It was mm-hmm. one of the most vital, uh, vibrant territories in the old territorial system, produced multiple NWA world champions, and, I mean, gave us Gordon Soley and Dusty Rhodes, arguably the most charismatic wrestler ever in the business and the greatest announcer ever in the business. That's a pretty strong legacy. That, that's an amazing thing to me. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, learn, the, the first meeting of the NWA world champion and the WWF champion was in Florida in the late 70s. I want to say it was Harley and uh, Backlund. Yes, you know, right. it was actually Harley, Harley and superstar Billy Graham. Mm. There you go. So, I mean, yeah, that, that was for the... the uh, that was for the uh, they were, they were for each other's title. They were trying to unify the world titles, and it ended up each of them took a fall, and the third fall was a draw. So there was mm-hmm. no winner. Yep. So that, that's the legacy that we should remember when we think about it. Not how it ended, but how awesome it was. Um, I, I don't think either. Anything else you want you want to add it to that, gentlemen? I completely agree, and yet I I couldn't have said it any better myself. Yeah, uh, I, I'd throw in. Uh, Kevin Sullivan rebranding Mark Lewin as a Purple Haze. Uh, there's a <laughs> Terry Funk Harley Race Texas Death Match that's on that YouTube channel I talked about. I think you can yeah. find it. Uh, a thing with uh, Josh LaDuke and uh, Superstar Graham having a bench press challenge. 
and uh, <laughs> Superstar eventually snaps and smashes Dusty's head into the barbells. You know, that's like heel one on one. Right. But well, there's a lot of viewing things to look at. We've given you to, to think about, listeners. Um, we want to thank Classic Chris Nelson, one half of the New Heavenly Bodies, for coming on. A, a guy who I knew the championship wrestling from Florida was near and dear to his heart. Um, Chris, have you got any kind of social media presence or any kind of thing that you want to want to plug while we got you on here? Uh, feel free to plug. You know what? I, I I stay as far away from social media as I can. That's fine. <laughs> I don't. That's fine. I, I don't. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, you weren't the easiest guy for me to find for my old black book, but I found you. <laughs> yeah, and we're so glad well, you did. Like, it's just like the child support. The child support people find me to. You're going to the Punky Morton School of... Oh, never mind. I'll just leave that alone. <laughs> I love you, Punky. You're listening. You know that. I'm I promise. <laughs> anyway, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here on Classic Wrestling Memories. Um, it, it, it was really kind of cool about a territory that I knew a little about, but not a whole lot. And you kind of smartened me up on some things. Seth, you got Thank any you guys. Words? I had a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, yep. So glad to have you. The door's always open if you want to come back, but... This has been Classic Wrestling Memories, uh, available at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a review. Let us know what you think about the show. And Train, if people want to talk to you, uh, it's CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter, correct? That is correct. And uh, w- once again, like I said, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is, is the website. You can give, leave Facebook comments on there. And uh, we're going to mosey on out of here. We're going to come back next time with some more Classic Wrestling Memories. And thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. So Harley Race is a six times world's champion and never again. Dusty Rhodes is a three times world's champion and never again because of me. I'll see to that. Sure, he whipped Ric Flair in a bunkhouse rules, but believe me, any time I'd apathetic, sympathetic, diabetical, egg-sucking dog steps into the ring with me, I am going to hurt him. And we know how because we are going to brand him. My brother and I are going to brand him. We don't have to worry about Harley Race, and we are going to brand him for life. Not with a hot iron on the hip, but with the heel of a boot. You make me want to throw up Dusty Rhodes. You are the sickest piece of wrestling flesh I have ever seen in my life. Here is a man over here. Let's see how tough you are against a couple of real Texans in bunkhouse rules.
This has got to be by far the greatest card of the year. Jimmy Garvin will defend the Florida heavyweight title. My chain gang will take the North American belts from Reed and Sugar and then Kendo Nagasaki. No disqualification with Mike Graham. <laughs> well, all I can say, of course, is that Terry Funk, as volatile and as explosive as he is, uh... I guess maybe he let away his own strategy. You can figure it out. Yeah, I know what they're going to do. I know they're going to bring that bunkhouse stuff down, see? I know what they're going to do. You know, in this matchup, the greatest tag team talent in the world, Terry Funk, is going to bring his stuff around. He wants to brand me with the boots. But that ain't the rule. That's why Big John Harris is there. This is head to head. This is wrestling talent. One on one. Holly Race, I'm not scared to get in the ring with you. I've been in the ring with you for six years. I'm the only man to beat you. Not once, not twice, but on three occasions. And I got many a scar and many a pain in my body from Harley Race. And they brought this thing together, Championship Wrestling of Florida, with Harley Race and Dusty Rhodes against Doy Funk Jr. And Terry, let me tell you something about your brother. I used to respect him so much for his wrestling ability. But just like you, he's turned into a wild animal because everywhere he goes, he's wanting bunkhouses. Why? Because he's lost his wrestling ability. Everywhere he goes, he's wanting bull rope magic. Why? Because he's lost his wrestling ability. Everywhere he goes, he's wanting two out of three falls with cages and chains because he's lost his wrestling ability. This is it. This is two men against two men. And let me leave you with this, Terry Funk. If you... So much as even go for my noggin, my head, my arm, what you broke before. I'm going to take that other eye that I didn't put out. And you're going to lose it right in Miami Beach. And you're going to feel the pain of Dusty Rhodes once again because this thing will never be over. 